0: Ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
1: Good afternoon. It is Friday and I cannot believe we're already almost halfway through July. It's July 10th. And it is a fabulous day here in Tampa, Florida, and uh, just sunny and bright, and really everything in my life is going that way. And it uh, it is a great day to talk about passion and about giving. And the author that we're going to be talking to today is Carrie Margridge, and she has written a very, very interesting book called Every Gift Matters how your passion can change the world. And so what we're going to be talking about today is that it isn't really the size of the gift that matters, but really what's happening in the heart. Carrie, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh Carrie, it is so great to have you and you know on the executive girlfriends group uh show we tend to focus on business topics. We t- talk about leadership and we talk about growth and innovation. But one of the things that I'm really passionate about is integrating giving into business, and uh, we can talk a little bit about that as we go along. But you know, I would love, before we get into talking about the book, I'd love to hear about you. I know you head up a family foundation, and you know, I'm sure that there's a story behind that. So you know, start back as far as you want, and uh, you know, talk about how giving has, has been woven throughout your life.
0: So I grew up with a very simple and humble beginning, um, my parents got married at an early age. My mom was only 18 and had me when she was 19. So I um, grew up in a really loving family. And at when I was nine years old, my parents divorced. Oh. So I ended up moving up to the Bay. My mom moved up to the Bay Area, so I moved with my mother. And, you know, I started working two jobs, and the Bay Area was a land of opportunity. Um, I was saving. Um, I'd written a business plan for a chain of tanning salons. That was going to be my dream, and I was going to pursue that. And I met this handsome man um, named John Borkridge and um, about four months later, we ended up getting married. With that, I didn't know at the time, his father was actually working in the tech industry, and his dad ended up taking a company public that most people know about. It's called Cisco Systems.
1: Oh, yes. And
0: this was uh, back in the early 90s. So John and I actually rode the Cisco Wave, and as the money got bigger and my in-laws became, I was always came from a giving background, but as the money became larger, um, they really decided to give back and allow their children to give back. And so the reason I've been vice president of the Family Foundation for so long was because of all the hard work that my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, with her support gave to, you know, Cisco Systems.
1: Very, very interesting. So so your job, your day-to-day job in managing, uh, and again, I, I think a lot of folks don't understand uh, what those family organizations do and how they differ, you know, from other charitable organizations. So maybe you could just give us a little uh, snapshot into that. Of course.
0: I... Um We made our Mortgage Family Foundation is its own 501c3, which means we're our own nonprofit entity. I started off, though, very slow. We started off just having a donor-advised fund at a local community foundation, which everybody could do across the country. And then we um, moved over to fidelity Gift Fund, and we had a gift fund for a while. But with my travel schedule, because we grew bigger, I needed a place where I could have investments so we have a finance committee. I also needed to, you know, we look at grants and we partner with a lot of grants. And then I also travel the world looking for the best and the most creative and innovative ideas because that's what we're looking to fund. So having my own 501c3 allows me to run the foundation like a business, and I absolutely oh very had a- cool run our foundation like a business. I'm the vice president, my husband's the president, and eventually we'll bring our children who are 21 and 22, we'll bring them on our board eventually, and they, if they want, they can also share in some of the responsibilities that I have.
1: Right. So I want to talk about that a little bit, Carrie, about, uh, about children, because, um Many of us, and especially the women that are in the executive girlfriends group, you know, we've had the privilege of either being in the C-suite or reporting to the C-suite, you know, throughout our careers. And and most of us that have children, uh, you know, those children have grown up with a significant amount of privilege as compared, uh, you know, to their peers, perhaps. And and with that comes a lot of responsibility. And and whether you are the beneficiary of a significant uh, fortune, you know, such as what came from the sale of your father-in-law's company, um, or you know, you just are, are have some means. How do we instill giving properly in our children, and and how do we help them understand that responsibility that goes along with that privilege?
0: What's fun about this is that our kids in this generation feel more compelled than ever to give back. So I don't think it's something that we have to work so significantly hard at getting them, to, getting them the desire to give back. What we have to understand as parents is not to hover and let them find their own passion. So I've been taking my kids on site visits um, for years. And I, we've all volunteered together as a family. And it's been really interesting to hear their feedback of what they like and what they don't like. And so now we're finally at the age where I can say, I'm going to do this project this week. Are you interested in coming with me? And mm. they'll say yes or no. When they say no, I have to be a good listener to say, okay, what do you want to do? And once they tell me, I look for that type of project and try to go with them on their project to see through their eyes what they're interested in giving
1: to. Very, very interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when we were growing up, uh, you know, and I'm in my late 50s, uh, in in school you never had an obligation to volunteer. Uh, you know, there certainly were kids who did, uh, but it wasn't measured. And now, not only is it, measured and required. I mean, there are a number of hours that they have to put in every year at the school where my children go uh, and, you know, they have to meet that requirement before they graduate, but now colleges are making giving back such a huge part um, of the acceptance process. And, you know, I've got a daughter who's just going in, into her senior year and, and I you know, had to sit her down the other day and say, hey, you know, do you have a plan? Um, because you know, you, you've really got to make this year count. And one of the things that she had been volunteering on, which was a program for teen girls to build lifelong self-esteem, that program shut down uh, last year. And, you know, she had been counting on going back out to this camp. And, And so, you know, helping kids figure out how to plug in, you know, I think is a big thing. And so I want to, you know, circle back, obviously, to the book. And and, uh, again, the message of this book is that every single gift matters. And it doesn't matter whether you can actually pull out the checkbook uh, or whether you're giving of your time and your talent. So chapter one of the book has a a very, very intriguing uh, title, and that is The $7 Miracle. Can you share the story behind that chapter?
0: happy to. Um, So we got involved with a program. Literacy is really near and dear to our hearts. And I would say that every community that I go into across America, including Tampa, literacy in our low-income schools is is an issue. And the reason it's an issue, what we learned, and maybe you already know, maybe your listeners already know this, but for every One child that lives in a low-income neighborhood, only one child in 300 even has a book in the home. Wow. Whereas, like you said, our kids grew up in privilege. Think about how many books our own kids have had in their book library since they were in kindergarten and now through, you know, a senior at high school.
1: Think about how many
0: times they had the privilege of going to Barnes & Noble or the bookstore, or the library. Now, the library is free, but a lot of people still don't have access to the library because it's not on the public transportation route. Right. So the $10 miracle happened for us because as we were doing these expensive literacy programs, we found that our kids who live in low-income neighborhoods have a high mobility rate. So when we discovered Book Trust, and you can go on the website, it's booktrust.org, Book Trust is a scholastic um, book partnership, and every child who is funded at $7 a month gets to choose three to four books of their own choice,
1: mm. and they get to
0: keep those books forever. So when we first started funding this program, and we would go into the school on the book day when they, after the kids had ordered their books, and it's kind of like Christmas. They're really excited to get oh, the books. Cool. They're really excited about reading, but they also... Um, had never had their own book. And we would have the moms and dads send the books back, like this can't be. They, you know, send this back, there must be a mistake. We must owe money for this. So it was really breaking down that barrier that, no, somebody cares so much about you, even though they don't know you, they're willing to fund your child's books. Then we had one little boy of recent who started wearing this backpack 24-7. The mom and dad couldn't get him to take his backpack off, He had never owned anything of his own, and so those books that he was getting every month for $7 was his personal treasure, and he slept with his backpack on. So the other reason why this has become a miracle effect for us is because of the ripple effect that it's had on the family. So not only does the child get to choose which books they want, but the child also is bringing those books home and sharing with their siblings and sharing with their family. And we've seen huge gain in adult literacy from the books that we gave in this one particular program. So it's had a multiple effect in many areas. And what I love is that it's scalable. Yourself, me, anyone out there in the community can log on to Book Trust, can make the $7 donation, and feel the same way that we do.
1: Oh, how cool. How cool is that? So the next chapter focuses on on a topic that, uh, you know, I I don't know that people really think about this a lot, but but it's about the topic of gratitude. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to hear about what was behind writing this chapter on A Grateful Life. Oh,
0: so I just, I know that I'm blessed and some of your listeners out there You know, I I got lucky. I married a wonderful man who treats me with dignity and respect. We're a 50-50 partnership. And um, I don't think a lot of people have that in their lives. Um, To when the foundation started, John said, you're going to be with me side by side. And to be quite honest, now he's kind of handed over the reins and said, I don't want to do as much. Will you take over? So I'm grateful for every single day that I get to live the Carrie Mortgage life. Um, I never take a day for granted because I know where I came from. I was that girl who wasn't sure where when I was 19 years old and living on my own, I wasn't sure if I could afford food that week. I was that girl at one point, and I will never forget who that girl was.
1: Oh, I love that. So, you know, this whole book is about – passion and and passion and the power of change um so you know talk to us about following that passion and and actually finding that passion within us because i think a lot of people get so bogged down in you know just the difficulties of everyday life just and most of it is minutia, right it's nothing long-term and nothing important so how do we find and follow that passion so this is, the, this is exactly why
0: I wrote this book. Um, I had just had the privilege of um, talking with a gentleman at Bloomberg last week. And I asked him about his passion, and it always shocks me. He said, well, I've never really found it. And so I just asked a simple question about, well, what do you like to do? And obviously he was a writer. He was interviewing me. And I said, I could put you in every kip school across the country tomorrow and you could teach creative writing. Nobody had ever taken that extra two minutes to ever listen to what his passion was. And that went back to my first statement about listening to your kids and finding out what their passion is. It's probably not your passion, but give it a chance. And I think that's why I'm so grateful to John and Tasha Mortgage, my in-laws, They allowed my husband and I to figure out our foundation. They didn't dictate to us what our passion was. So while we still invest right now in education, I have the liberty and the flexibility to go into new sectors. And I've just jumped into workforce development, and I can't tell you how happy I am investing (laughs) in workforce development. I am beyond thrilled and have projects to share, but they're not in my book. (laughs) (laughs) But it's finding your passion first, and it's about working with great people. Remember, giving isn't an obligation. If you feel that obligation, and I meet people across the country that feel that giving is an obligation, take a time out, Um, stop what you're doing, reevaluate, but think about what you do want to do, what sings to your heart because that's when you're really going to get involved and that's when you're really going to re- feel the reward and the joy of giving.
1: And so Carrie is is that what you talk about in the chapter on finding common ground because clearly in in linking our passions to, you know, actually making a difference, we do have to look at a lot of different things. And, and, you know, you've talked about your passions being literacy and, and uh, you know, now uh, looking at workforce development. How do we find that common ground so that we can make a difference?
0: So all of us are very unique in, in what we have to offer. And when people come and ask us for a grant, I'll um, say, you know, it's more about a relationship first and seeing if there's even a fit for us. Now, no matter what level you are a donor at, you have the right and the ability to express this. And you should use your voice to express, like, this is what I'm really passionate about and this is what I want to do. And if you don't offer that, that's okay, but maybe you could turn me on to another like-minded organization that has more in, in line with what my passion is. So that's what I mean by finding common ground. Um, I love innovation. I want to fund innovation, and I want to fund the new new. So what I'm looking for is, okay, that's great that you have this wonderful program that's working. Do you have anything on the burner that you could think that might be your next project that you want to work with? And so that's how we get started on finding common ground. If it's not there, don't force it. I'm working with Team on right now. And um, they're based in California. It's um, a disaster relief that hires and sends our v- veterans to the disaster relief sites. And think about how, how skilled and trained they are. So I keep asking them for their BHAG, their right. Bacteriaceous Goal, and they're working on it. But we've been working on it for seven months. We know we're going to do a project in the future, but we have to find that common ground first before we get there.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, I love that. And I remember last year when, uh, well, gosh, it's probably been, been a year and a half now, um, the ice bucket craze, when that came around, we had just built a product called Traveling to Give. I come from the travel industry, and I'm a, an expert in travel technology. And, you know, we wanted to be able to save the world one trip at a time. And so with each trip that people would take, we would donate uh, money back to their favorite charity, and which is also a part of my current company's business model. But I said, you know, people are willing to take these pictures of dumping cold water on their head. You know, how how much better would it be to take a picture at the destination of everywhere that you go and say, you know, that I'm supporting uh, changing the world through that. And so, you know, we had this great idea, but, you know, when when you find that common ground of things that should work and things that can make a difference, you know, sometimes you still do run into the, well, you know, that's not the way we've raised money in the past and that's not the way that it has worked. So, you know, being committed to being a difference maker, and I mean, I love innovation uh, just like you do, and I, I you know, keep my eyes open for it in every corner. Um, so so how, how do you deal with uh, individuals who, who can't see past the way that they've always done something. Because, you know, I find this is the major problem in corporate life anyway, is not being able to think out of the box. This
0: is the most critical point of you being a great donor, is learning how to say no. And being kind and respectful to saying, you know, it's just not the right fit. I realize Mm -hmm. it. Maybe you don't realize it, but I really realize it. And I'm really sorry, but I have to move on. Um, this was one of my biggest aha moments is that it was okay to say no. Um, Nobody had really shared with me that it would be okay to say no for a long time. And I felt really bad and would get guilty when it was a project I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to do it. But then something really horrible happened to me, and I put it in the book, is I got bullied into a grant. And what that meant is that a gentleman called me and said, you know, everybody else is doing this, and you are the only one in the in the community that is not supporting my project.
1: <laughs> and
0: it, <laughs> it really took me a How to win effort. friends
1: and influence people. <laughs>
0: yeah. So um, from that point on, you know, I got so angry. I really let this guy have it and say, so, you know what, you have it all wrong, and you have your approach all wrong, not only did he lose me as a donor, but he lost me as a person that would advocate advocate for his program. And to this date, I still ridicule his program. Him and I still do the same work in the same city, but um, I clearly will pick him apart at any corporate board meeting and say, I don't, I don't support his cause because he doesn't do this, this, and this, and he's a Right. Boy. So you have the right to say no. What I love is how the people come back. They're either gracious or they're not. There doesn't seem to be a gray area in how they take the no. The gracious people, you may want to time out and say, you know what, call me in a year. The ungracious people walk away.
1: That is really, really good advice. Now, you you also talk about uh, having a seat at the table. And and we've just finished a series uh, with executive women of uh, people who would like to get on boards and whether that's corporate boards or not-for-profit boards. And so we talked a lot about getting a seat at the table from that perspective. Talk to us about what you mean by having a seat at the table in the context of giving and finding your passions.
0: A seat at the table for me means having a voice. And so, um, for, especially for women, you know, every time I look around at a board, like I'm on the, on a university board, it's 75% men. Um, I'm on a a physics board, it's 80% men. So women, we need to step up and accept more roles in corporate boards and in philanthropic boards. Because this is where all the decision making is made and our voice is heard at those meetings. And we do have a lot to offer. So a seat at the table for me is making sure that not just women are at the table. We do this all the time in education. I'll have an educational meeting and not one teacher will be there. It drives me crazy. Why are we making decisions for teachers without teachers having a seat at the table? So now our foundation, again, we won't take a meeting unless we have teachers sitting side-by-side side with us to say, hey, is this a good program or not? And that's what I really mean by having a seat at the table is is in- making sure that everybody is included in the process and it's not just a top-down organization.
1: So, Carrie, um- if, if we have individuals who feel like they're qualified to be on, on a nonprofit board, can you give us just a, a thumbnail of what, what characteristics actually make a good nonprofit board member?
0: Um, the characteristics are first that you ha- share the same passion for that board. So if you're not sharing the same passion, having all those meetings, because it does take a lot of time, would, would really drain your efforts. So be passionate about the cause. Um, But number two is a lot of times you're going to be asked to be a great fundraiser. Um, So learn that skill, know that skill, or acknowledge that you don't have that skill and go into that board saying, I'm willing to learn, but I don't have fundraising skills. Um, One of the skills that is missed at every single nonprofit board that I sit on is social media. Nobody has marketing um, abilities. So if you're out there and you have marketing abilities, you are the most sought out board member that people need. The other um, skill that's highly needed is finance and accounting. A lot of nonprofit boards really rely on their board members to advise them through the financial and through the accounting process. This is another great skill that um, that can be used at the board and have an immediate impact on the organization. And then the last skill is honestly just I think women possess this a lot more than men is that we're good listeners. Listen to what the board is needing, what your chairman needs, what your executive director needs, and then act on that. Don't always try to infuse your own ideas but be good listeners and I think we as women we do that the best because we got training from our kids.
1: That's very interesting. Yes, and you know, the the folks that we have been um, talking to on our show uh, are all wanting to find a way to give back and I think that that's a really material Uh, way that they can contribute. And so uh, thank you so much. I know that that isn't uh, specifically a topic of your book, but I wanted to tap into you on that front. So your next uh, chapter is about investing in leaders. And, you know, you've talked about how you take a look at at different things that your foundation wants to invest in. What do you look for in in a leader? And and what what is the story behind Invest in Leaders, your chapter?
0: I I look for the same thing in a philanthropic leader as you would as a CEO running a Fortune 500 company. What does the team look like? What does the communication look like? What does the strategic plan look like? Um, How do they communicate with me? How do they treat their employees? Everything that you're doing in business, roll over that into the philanthropic world. What we hear often, which drives me crazy, is that um, I'm part of uh, Catholic Charities of Fort Worth, a big project they're doing called the Padua Pilot. They get deemed because they're the best in their community, and people already say, but you're so strong. We're trying to help find the little guy. That is exactly opposite, and i like you to think of your philanthropic dollars as your investment dollars. You wouldn't put your investment dollars in the little guy because you're trying to give him a chance. You'd want to put your investment dollars of retirement in the best organization out there at having the best effect on your community. so the the characteristics of a great leadership, um and I wrote it in my book with Dave krepko. He's with Feeding America, is that he communicates with me often, and the communication is a one he calls it a one way communication where he's just sharing with me what he's doing. Um, So look for that kind of communication in the organizations that you work with. Um, Look for leadership in not sitting behind a desk. A great CEO is never sitting behind a desk in a nonprofit. They're out in the community meeting people, shaking hands, going to events, being seen, being heard. That is a great leader. And then the last thing that I love about great leaders is that they're willing to take risks. Not high risk, but they're willing to do something different. And Heather Reynolds of Catholic Charities said for 100 years, the Catholic Charity Church gave to the same people in the same way over and over in poverty. She said, I want to alleviate poverty, and how are we going to do that? So she put together a five-year plan, got together all these committee people, and they met time and time again until they had a plan. Now that plan is started, and they're doing research with the University of Notre Dame. This is so impressive of a woman who is taking poverty to a new level because she said, I was tired of doing things the same way time and time and time again. So look for those qualities in your leaders. Always ask them, what innovative project are you working on next, and how do you think I could be a part of that?
1: Well, and it's interesting, and I know it's very cliche about you know uh, teach teach a man to fish rather than than feeding him. And I think what you just explained about her uh, is that the tendency can be you know, just to do things for people as opposed to teaching them to do something for themselves. And one of my favorite uh, charities here in Tampa is something called Dress for Success, where, you know, they're taking clothes out of the closets of, you know, women who have way too much stuff to begin with. And rather than giving it to the goodwill, giving it to Dress for Success will equip someone to actually go on a job interview when they don't possess Uh, the wardrobe to do that. And if they get the job, then, you know, to be able to tap into uh, the clothes closet there, to be able to, you know, have the wardrobe to go to work every day. And again, you know, some of those things we just take so for granted and and they aren't uh, thinking outside the box like they could. Um, You have one chapter that, that intrigues me and it's called Clone Your Cash. Clone Your Cash is all about how to leverage your money.
0: And so when you're also looking at these investments and again I'll go back to Heather Reynolds her um, her research project is six and a half million. so we gave one and a half million as a match and so she matched it two to one so my one and a half million you know turned into four and a half million and um, you can look for that every time you write a check so you can dictate no matter what the size of the check, if it's a 5 a 10 a $20, a $200, a $1,000, that my money will be matched or I want my money back. Mm. And so cloning your cash, I a lot of times will work with a state pull-down or a federal pull-down grant. Um, Denver Museum of Nature and Science, we um, partnered with them. And we John and I did give a very large, what I call a mega gift, We gave $8 million but the city bond was um, over $60 million. But we only had to raise another $3 million to get the entire building complete. And so that $3 million came in with fives, tens, and twenties because it was really important to us to have grassroots. But that was a huge leverage piece on our part. And um, the city was at the table and the state was at the table. And we ended up winning a NASA grant to have... Um, uh, heating and water cooling through the city, and it's been really fun to watch our museum be off the grid in this part of the building. So there's really wonderful innovations. Like again, if you're this, I call like a triple home run because not only was my money leveraged, but the environment was saved, and um, we see 1.2 million kids a year. So I couldn't have imagined of uh, investing in a, a more impactful project. Um, that, that
1: leverage my money. Very, very interesting. Yeah, you know, there's just so much we don't think about. Uh, so you have another chapter that you know I I just love the name, and that is unintended consequences.
0: Oh, I love unintended consequences because <laughs> <laughs> there is a sometimes you're doing good for one reason, and then there's another wonderful magical moment that happens. Um, I too live part time in Florida. I live on the other side of Tampa in a little town called Stuart. Oh yeah. And um we're working with this project called Project Lift. And Project Lift takes inca- incarcerated young men who our education system failed them and pulls them out of pulls them out of um juvenile hall or jail. Give them love, support, and job experiences to get back on their feet and get a real job. Um, So what they do is they fix up old old, um, used cars that are donated to another project that we work with called House of Hope. The unintended consequences is that we thought we were just donating to these young boys to give them job skills of auto mechanics because that's what we need in Florida is auto and boat mechanics. But what happened was, is that this car actually goes to a low-income family that's part of House of Hope. If the car ever breaks down, they bring it back to the boys and the boys fix it. Here's the unintended consequence. The car has now shown that the family that received the car, they've had an average income increase of $5,000 to support their own families once they got transportation because they could get to their jobs more often. <laughs> Very
1: cool. And they could,
0: they could sustain themselves more often. So this Project Lift has just had this huge ripple effect. We were just – we I really wanted to help these incarcerated boys, and instead I'm helping two families because I'm helping these young men get their lives back on the track, and I'm helping the families – earn more income so they can be sustainable as well.
1: Very, very cool. So, Carrie, this this is all a a long journey that, that uh, you have described in your book of all of the different ways that people have been making a difference, but it requires that we take the first step. If we have a heart for giving but we haven't been giving because we think it's not going to make enough of a difference – Talk to us about the whole premise of of Every Gift Matters and and how you take that first step. Um, Taking the first step
0: really means that you're open-minded and willing to look what's out there, and you're willing to give of yourself. The dirty little secret about taking the first step is that there's a huge reward that comes back to you. And the reward is... The feeling that you get when you really have that magic moment of giving back and changing somebody's life, and you don't have to have a lot of money to change somebody's life or to get involved with somebody's life. Um, we do a lot of foster care work, and our foster care kids always say, "I just, I just want to have somebody who I can ask five questions to," but I don't even have that. So, no matter what you find and how your passion, what whatever your passion is. You have to find your passion, but the reward is going to be tremendous. So I always like to say this is, this is your moment to take that first step, to start looking. You know, go on Google. Go on Google and just Google what your passion is and see if, and, you know, and then put Tampa behind it and just see if there's a volunteer organization that you could give it a shot at. Um, I know that there's a, over 1,000 501c3s in Tampa area alone of different areas. And so give them a try, and don't, don't just stop at your first one. Give three different, three different organizations a try before you make your final decision. Because you do that in investing. You look up mutual funds. right? Um, you don't just take the tip. You do your homework on them. So do your homework on three nonprofits that share the same passion as you, But you'll find that each nonprofit is uniquely poised to do something different. And maybe that little difference is also links to your uniqueness of who you are.
1: Excellent. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, Carrie's book is Every Gift Matters, How Your Passion Can Change the World. And uh, we're going to stop the public portion of this uh, broadcast right now. And I I know we do have uh, some of our members uh, that are on the air. So I'm going to go ahead and stop the recorded portion. Carrie, if you could just hang on the phone uh, so that our Executive Girlfriends group members uh, can chat with you.
0: You've been listening to The Game Changer, ideas, inspiration, innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.